This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to episode 234 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, but joining me as he does every week is the world-renowned Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? I am doing fine. Hi-ya! I'm doing my karate moves right now. And you'll know why in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, I see you you practicing some sort of strange martial art that I'm not familiar with. It looks kind of familiar, but I I, I can't quite place it. It's like if you uh, karate chop someone like at the neck, bam, they go down. It's great. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I see you like swinging your fists while clasped together like a club. I don't know. Does Does that actually work? That doesn't look like... I mean, I don't know. You know what? I mentioned that to my wife one time, who's a physical therapist, and she was like, well, actually, technically, if you did do and hit in the right, whatever, I'm like, seriously, come on. (laughs) She goes, I know it's a stretch, but I'm just saying. Hmm. Well, that brings us to uh, the only item we really have in our news today. And some of you might already know what we're talking about here. A special form of martial arts that... Some people refer to as Kirk Fu. So, hmm, interesting. We've got actually a book coming out, Star Trek, Kirk Fu Manual, an introduction to the Final Frontier's most feared martial art. (laughs) So, yeah, this is, we've got this coming uh, on March 5th, 2019. So that'll be early next year. And Dayton Ward, friend of the show and frequent Star Trek writer, is writing this book. So, uh, yeah, this looks pretty interesting. So, you know, I'm sure Dayton has practiced a lot of these moves in order to write this book, because there's no way you can (laughs) write a book about Kirk Fu unless you have actually tried it and have, have studied it. So I'm very interested to see maybe at STLV, he will show us some of those moves on stage. I'd be very interested to see that. Definitely. We'll have to get some footage of that and uh, 
yeah, maybe provide that as a bonus if we're able to get that, because that would be that would be a lot of fun for sure. But yeah, this is an illustrated guide from Insight Books that is, quote, a one of a kind fighting manual, which showcases the unique combat style of Captain James T. Kirk. So uh, this looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, hardcover books, 64 pages. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of moves in there. And so when that comes out in March, then sometime later in 2019, when you go to conventions uh, for Star Trek related things, you're going to see people actually doing these moves in the hallway, I'm sure, in their cosplay. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. And yeah, so it's uh, got a price point right now on Amazon of $14.99. You can be it can be pre-ordered now. So, uh, yeah, take a look at that. Check that out. And you know what? We're going to have to put this on the schedule and maybe have Dayton come on to talk about this book because this looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Or this should be a special YouTube episode so we can see Dayton Ooh. do the moves. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to probably buy him a few drinks before we get to that point. But uh, you never know. We'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do for sure. Well, I'm sure if we buy him a few drinks, he will definitely do this for us. (laughs) Perfect. Well, speaking of authors, we've got a special feature in today's episode. We're talking to James Swallow, author of the recent Star Trek Discovery novel, Fear Itself. So what do you say we cut this preliminary stuff and go straight into the feature? I'm kind of scared. I mean, I'm fearful of talking about this book. I I feel very Saru right now. (laughs) Well, you just have to work really hard to overcome that and uh, make some command decisions. Aye, aye, Captain. Well, today we're talking about the latest Star Trek Discovery novel, Fear Itself, by writer James Swallow. And we have the author himself here to talk about his book. So, James, thank you so much for coming on Literary Tracks. Hey, guys. Always good to be on board. Uh, A pleasure to be invited back. Thank you. Excellent. Always glad to have you on, uh, especially to talk about one of the few new releases that we that we get this year. So it almost seems like kind of a rare occasion to be able to do a show like this about a new Star Trek book release. So very happy to have you aboard. Oh, great. Well, uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, we've talked to both uh, David Mack and Dayton Ward about their process in writing for Discovery, and it's a little bit different than it has been in the past with other Star Trek novels. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of writing this novel. And did you, for example, work closely with the Discovery writing staff and Kirsten Beyer in putting it together? Yeah, I mean, probably a lot of what I'm going to say is pretty similar to what um, Dave and Dayton have said. Um, It was, we were into this like a year before I think it was announced that we were going to be involved with the project. So if you can imagine the scene, um, I get an email from, from Kirsten who, you know, I'd worked with before on a couple other projects and, uh, she was very complimentary about some of my writing and I was very complimentary about hers cause we're all good pals and we all read each other's stuff. And she'd really liked what I did with, um, Sight Unseen, which was my, um, my last Star Trek Titan novel. And so when, you know, I knew about her getting on discovery and I sent her a message saying, wow, that's so cool to see you on board. Uh, you know, because it really made us all feel like having a someone who was a former tie-in writer doing stuff on an actual Star Trek show kind of lends it a real air of legitimacy, what we do as tie-in writers, you know. And so she came back and said, well, hey, look, we're looking at doing novels. Are you interested? And, well, yeah, obviously. You know, I'm not going to say no to the opportunity to, to write uh, another Star Trek book, and especially another Star Trek book about a brand new show. 
and to uh, to make it even better, she said, "Well, we've got this new character, and it's kind of the, the the you know the the alien breakout viewpoint character, you know, which is a staple of we always have in Star Trek. You know, we had like characters like Spark or Data or Seven of Nine or the Doctor, you know, or um, Odo on DS Nine. You know, we've always had a character, that alien outsider character, who gives us a kind of a view of the human condition from the outside in. And they, you know, this is Saru. This is going to be the guy uh, on Discovery. So." Obviously, I was very enthused about that. And, but at the very beginning of things, we had to keep everything very, very secret because Paramount and were playing it very, very close to their chest. And we had to be very, very quiet about what we were seeing. So me and the other guys, we essentially, we were signed up to a, like a top secret VPN. So we were being sent copies of the scripts. Every time a new iteration of the script would come out, we'd get that emailed to us. And each day, we would get the photographs coming in from the previous day's filming. So we would see all the set photography and it was incredible to, to have that degree of access completely unprecedented. I would say in terms of any tie in project I've ever worked in to have that, de that degree of contact, a two way contact, the this, this street being open between us and the, the production office to see the shows literally forming in front of our eyes, you know, reading the script one day and then the next day going, Oh wow, there's the set photography from that. There's that scene being shot right in front of me, you know, seeing it all come together uh, and watching the, the show assemble and, and the themes of it all, all coming together. And off the back of that, you know, removed kind of one step away from it, looking at these book ideas and saying, well, how do we take what we're seeing there and evolve that concept into, into something really interesting. Uh, and with, with Saru, obviously, you know, he plays a very important role in the show, which, and his arc is quite strong throughout the, the course of season one of discovery and having the opportunity to sort of like tackle him and, and unfold a little bit more of his character was, was really exciting for me. Uh, especially as, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of a bit one note when you get this idea is, Oh, you know, he's from this predator, this predator filled planet. And he's like a bit of a scaredy cat. And that's like kind of, that's the only character note you get. But as he evolves through the story, you know, we see him stepping into a command role and, and really becoming a fully fleshed out character. So having the opportunity to go, well, who is that guy before, before he's the guy we see in the, the first two-part episode, that was, that was a really interesting challenge. And we got to work very closely with Kirsten. Kirsten's kind of like the, you know, the, the, um, the, point, the single point of contact that we had on the show. We, we worked with her doing a kind of little back and forth and just you know, coming together to create hopefully something that, that worked really well. So at what point were you writing this novel? Was it, I mean, obviously you're getting the show notes, but were you still writing the novel when the show premiered? So you were able to see the characters interaction and the visuals or were, was this all written prior to that? Well, I was pretty lucky actually, because I was like tail end Charlie of this, this three book set. I got the most amount of time to uh, absorb the show as it was coming out. Dave was at the first, uh, the front of the line, right? He's the first guy. So he had to be working on his novel when the show was still being constructed. Dayton was in the middle of things. So he got a bit of, a little bit of either way, but I was actually writing, you know, actually properly cutting metal, writing the story on fear itself as the show was coming out. So I was getting to watch finished versions of episodes because I already, obviously I'd seen all the scripts and I'd seen the kind of the, uh, the prototype versions of the characters as it were, but you know, scripts change in, in the filming and they change in the editing. And obviously what's on screen is, is that the ultimately that's the definition of the character and that's the definition of the moment and the nuance of them. And I had the position of being able to absorb all of that before I got to deliver the book, but we were right up against the wire. I mean, we pushed, pushed to the very limit to the point that when we were going through the final kind of desk edits, 
they were already starting to put together ideas. The writers' room had already gathered for for season two, and they were starting to put together ideas about what they were going to do with the second season of the show and with Saru's arc through that. And we were trying to draw from that and say, okay, well, if you're going to be doing that in season two, this is stuff that we can't do in the book. Or you know, we want to make sure that we don't do anything that that will potentially collide with any ideas that that they're putting together um, for that series. And in fact. Fear itself went through uh, a lot of changes because of that, because of the way the show was evolving. A lot of the decisions that the writing staff on the series made meant that there were certain things that I had planned to do in the book that in the end I couldn't do. Hmm. So you've gotten some insights into what's going to happen in season two as well as uh, knowing what was going on in season one then. Yeah, I mean, not not anywhere near as much. I mean, we haven't been seeing sort of script treatments or anything like that, but we've kind of had a, a few conversations oh. about it. Yeah, Dan, don't don't start asking what's coming up in season two. He's not going to Don't worry, I know better than that. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I mean, the truth is, guys, as I really know about as much as anybody else does. You know, I'm, I've been looking at some of the uh, the news reports coming through and, and the, the stuff that has been announced. I mean, you know, it's pretty public knowledge that there is going to be a Saru-centric story in episode two, you know, so... Um, my lead at that point was just, you know, don't step on anything that that show is going to do. Excellent. Well, one thing that I really appreciated about this novel was, like you said, kind of getting inside Saru's head and, you know, learning a lot more about him. I love the fact that we get most of this book from his perspective. And I was wondering what it was like kind of getting a grasp on the character and, and finding that voice that, I mean, because he's got a very unique way of looking at the world. And I was wondering what it was like to craft a story from that perspective. Well, you know, when I was watching the show, the thing I saw when I was reading people's commentary about the show and, you know, the, what people's impressions of his character were, I was seeing a lot of people who, who were people who suffered like kind of social anxiety and, and kind of like, you know, um, issues about their sort of like their sense of self. And they were saying that they identified really strongly with the idea that Saru is this guy who's kind of like, you know, he's, he's being pulled in two different directions. You know, he has, he has a very strong ego, but he wants to be liked, you know, he's, he wants to be an outgoing character, but he's also quite introverted. And, and there were a lot of people who had that experience in their lives saying this character really speaks to me because I see a lot of myself in them. So I tried to reach into that. You know, all of us have had moments where we felt insecure. All of us had moments where, you know, our self-confidence, becomes brittle and breaks and I went back to all of those moments in my own life and thought well where can I where can I draw from to find the the elements that speak to the character of Saru so I tried to build a narrative that that orbits around that because this is essentially fear itself is essentially a be careful what you mm. wish for story because it's about Saru saying well you know I'm, a, I'm I'm good at this job I could be a command officer you know I could I could deal with this kind of thing and then that's exactly what gets dropped in his lap and he gets put in a situation where he has to be a commanding officer, where he has to deal with two warring factions and also kind of earn the respect of uh, the Starfleet crew that he's with. And all these things are all pulling him in different directions. And he basically gets what he, what he asked for and finds he doesn't actually want it, but it's too late. You know, he has to deal with all these situations. And that's an interesting challenge to put a character in because he's out of his comfort zone. And the truth about Saru is he's never in his comfort zone. You know, all the time we see him, he doesn't have much of a comfort zone of any kind, the poor guy, you know, because of the kind of culture that he comes from and the situation that he's in. He's always slightly afraid of everything around him. And, you know, that's a, it's a terrible way to go through life. But people who have that kind of sensibility have to learn how to manage it and how to, how to move through life and not have it be a kind of crippling thing that controls everything that they do. And Sarah's going through the same thing. 
And that was really interesting to tackle that because we don't often see that in Star Trek. You know, we don't traditionally see characters who have big character issues, who have big flaws that they have to get over. You know, usually it's someone has an issue and they, they, they address it and they deal with it and they move on, they become a better person. Saru is the kind of guy, he's never going to really get past what he is. So he has to learn to kind of make it part of what he is. He has to learn how to make peace with it. And that's, again, that's what I tried to kind of shine a light on is how do you deal with that thing if it's not something you can just make go away? And I think we'll explore this character more as we go through the discussion, but we want to try to avoid some spoilers here in the beginning. And then we get later into this conversation. We'll, we'll warn everybody when we get into spoilers, because we do want to delve deep into this book and into the character of Saru. But you had mentioned about the, uh, the different warring races that are going on uh, with each other. It's, you know, we have Saru that goes on this Polar ship or Polar is it Pelar or Pelar? How would you? Uh, Pe- Peliar. Peliar. Oh, I was off on both of them. <laughs> the Peliar ship. And he finds that the Gorlins are held in seclusion in this freighter and that they are an individual. They have this individual being or, or member of their group that is basically, quote, the hub. And uh, they're being taken to this world to... Uh, be rid of and relocated and join their other people. Anyway, I don't want to get, I mean, we can go on and on about that, but I would want you to tell us about those two races and how you came up with them. And I would think that maybe there's certain aspects of them that you developed. So it would play off of that fear of Saru and that insecurity. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's the, as I said, the, the story is about Saru being in uh, finding himself in a situation, which I think is a very traditional Star Trek situation. We often see this, this ideal in Star Trek narratives of Starfleet being in a circumstance where there are two or war more factions in conflict. And our Starfleet characters come into the situation and go, how can we try and help you people? How can we try and, you know, ameliorate this? How can we stop this conflict from happening? And hopefully by the end of the story, everybody kind of finds a happy medium and, you know, everybody lives happily ever after. That to me is a very traditional Star Trek story model. So I thought, well, how can I, you know, take that concept and drop it into the discovery style of storytelling, which is much more gritty, which is much more flawed, which is much more about characters, you know, trying to find their place in the world. And there aren't as many easy answers as maybe there are in other Star Trek stories. And so the way I did that is, you know, I took these two factions, these, these two species, the, you know, the Pelia come from uh, an episode of Star Trek Next Generation, and the Gorlins uh, don't even appear on screen, actually, just mentioned in passing in, um, in a TOS episode in Mirror Mirror. So I used, so I had a, a, a pretty big, you know, open space to, to kind of develop backgrounds for both of these species. And of course, in the Discovery timeline, you know, it's a long time before we've seen any of their sort of the TNG characters background and it's been all it's before the Gorlins are mentioned. So I had a lot of opportunity to develop stuff and, and kind of position these characters and these species to perform the narrative roles that I need to have them perform. Um, so I had quite a free hand there and, and that was, uh, that was very useful to, to make the story structure work. Well, I always appreciate that too, when authors kind of flesh out species that we've heard of or maybe seen briefly in a few episodes, because, you know, there's so much rich stuff in Star Trek and so many things to build on. I really uh, like the the Peliarzel moons, you know, we, we just see them briefly. I think it's in the episode, um, The Host, if I'm not mistaken. 
And just to to get a little bit of background even adds a little bit more context to those episodes. Yeah, I mean, it, it was there's there's a lot like you say there's a lot of kind of throwaway species that you see in one episode and then you never hear of those guys mm-hmm. ever again. And the thing about the discovery time period is we have to be very careful about who we use in a story because of continuity issues. You know, you don't want a species turning up and saying like, well, we're having a conversation with some Bajorans. It's like, well, did we meet the Bajorans at this point in time? You know, can we talk to a Cardassian or is you know, Cardassians aren't around yet? Can we talk to this species? Can we talk to that species? Yeah. So I had to, you know, look through the timeline and go, well, who's available for me to tell stories about? Who has enough empty backstory that I can pour new narrative ideas into? And these guys were both perfect fits for that. And having the, the fact that the Pelios had turned up on screen, so I had kind of something visual to work from. I had the, you know, a concept I could draw from. And with the Gorlans having more of a, of a free hand there, I decided I was going to create a species who look a little bit different. So these guys are kind of like um, stocky, almost kind of Lord of the Rings dwarf type guys, except they have four arms, which is something we'd never seen on Star Trek before. And I thought that might be interesting to have a, you know, a, a, a creature with, you know, a different number of limbs, which immediately kind of creates a, a very striking visual image. And having them be sort of like short, stocky little guys and Saru being tall and gangly immediately to me creates a, a very arresting kind of visual image of these guys having a conversation. And the use of the Tholians as well, I, I feel like they're kind of a species we don't get a lot of insight into. And I feel like in this book, you kind of delve a little bit into their mindset and how they see the people around them. Um, at this point, how much contact did you imagine the Federation had had with the Tholians? And uh, I, I mean, I know we do see them in Enterprise a little bit, but has there been a lot of history is between them or is this kind of one of the first real face-offs between them? That's an interesting question. I mean, I always liked the Tholians, you know, from the, their first appearance in TOS, where we just kind of get the glimpse of them. And they have this, you know, they're super mysterious and the idea of them being the crystalline based life form, you know, they're, they're probably one of Trek's truly alien aliens. And I really, really like that about them. And then seeing them again in enterprise was fun. So when I was looking for uh, a threat force for this story, I was looking and saying, well, it can't be the Romulans because of the time period. And it can't really be the Klingons because of what's going to happen in battle for the binary stars it needs to be somebody else. And I thought for a while, do I want to create a new aggressor species? And I kept going back and thinking, you know, I really want to kind of tie this more closely to the to the continuity of the series. And I just really like the Tholians. And I've never really had the opportunity to tackle a story with them in it. So um, when we were putting the story together, I, you know, I went to Margaret Clark, who was editing the book. And I said, how about the Tholians? What do you think? And that went back to to um, Discovery HQ. And they said, like, yeah, you know, we don't have any plans to do anything with them in the first season. So, you know, do it, you know, make the Tholians the bad guys in this story. Um, in terms of the greater continuity of where they fit in, in the timeline, I just had the sense that things haven't really changed much between this period and, you know, when we see them in the Tholian web is that they've just, I imagine there's some point where, you know, Starfleet's kind of stepped on their toes and they've said, don't, you know, this is our, this is our fence, don't cross it. And, and if you do, you know, there'll be trouble. And there is kind of a sense of almost the escalation going on in this story. You know, there is a confrontation at the end of the novel where, um, you know, the Tholians are confronted and they quite clearly say, you know, if you, you know, you know, if you step over our line in the sand, it's going to go badly for you. And, but they, but they don't give anything back. You know, they're completely unreasonable. They have this xenophobic, you know, totally acerbic, unpleasant attitude. They're not interested in being friends with anyone. 
They just want, you know, you stay, you stay on your side and I, we'll stay on our side. But beneath that bubbling away, I think, is this kind of territorial nature that they want to expand their turf and they don't really care about anybody else. There's something that Dan Abnett, um, a friend of mine who worked on the Warhammer novels with me, but he wrote some great Star Trek comics. He did this with um, his um, Pike-era Star Trek comics, the early Voyages ones. He did a, a story that had the Tholians in it, and he hit on the idea that the Tholians have flexible borders. And, by, and, and because of the way that they see space-time and they see kind of territory, as it were, those borders are not like literally lines on a map because they move backwards and forwards. So from their point of view, where they think the line is drawn is not necessarily where you think the line is drawn. And they're perfectly justified in attacking you. And I like the idea of that because, again, that plays into their alien nature because, you know, they perceive the nature of the universe in a more alien way than, say, you know, a humanoid species might. And I think all of that is kind of bubbling away under the surface of the Tholians when they appear in this novel. I love that because you're right. We look at things a certain way, and that's what makes uh, different aliens seem so alien to us because the way they view things is totally different. I didn't even, you know, I would have never thought of that. I just would think, you know, when we talk territory, everybody thinks of the same way. You put lines on a map, and theirs is always changing. It's it's different. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting. But also with the Gorlins, I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, I guess it's Ela, the hub. Ija, Ija. Yeah. So Ija, tell us about that character and how you came up with that, because I find that uh, really interesting how that society works. Well, what I wanted to do is create a culture that when you first meet them, you think they're quite primitive, but they're not really. Because I like the idea of that. It's, it's something that you see, it's touched on a little bit if you watch uh, you know, Star Trek Insurrection when, you know, when they go down to the planet and they meet these people who don't have technology and they live in these nice kind of houses and everything. And it's like, oh, these people are kind of primitive and low tech. Um, and it turns out they actually kind of, no, they understand how warp drive works. They're just not interested in using it. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really like the, those guys in insurrection to me. I thought they were very sort of haughty and a bit arrogant, but I liked the idea of, of, you know, encountering a species and thinking these people are primitive. These people are not as sophisticated as us because, you know, they live in tents and and they don't have toasters or replicators or a car right and i thought that's a very interesting idea to me to find out that that's not true is that these people just have again it's about perception right it's these people have a way of life that just because it isn't quote unquote sophisticated it's not primitive it's just different and that's kind of the 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 the, the direction i wanted to take with with the gorlins so so when the, our characters first encounter them, they, they have an issue communicating with them because their language is really complex and it has a kind of strange nuance which is based on the idea that their bodies broadcast an electromagnetic field. So there's this invisible component to their communication and if you can't sense that, you can't even really have a proper conversation with these people because you can't get the nuance of what they're saying. And again, the, it's, a, it's about a level of sophistication in their culture that is not immediately apparent to the eye. So I wanted to develop that idea. And then the concept that because they have this sort of shared um, aura, for want of a better term, that all the different people you know, can sense each other's emotions, emotional states, that they have uh, this sense of community. It's not like a group mind. It's not like a Borg-style collective kind of thing where you know, their thoughts, they're transferring literal thoughts. It's more subtle than that. 
And the idea that the hub is, is somebody who's, who's born into this culture, who is kind of slightly stronger in this ability, this, this, this sort of, it's not even a psychic ability, it's this sort of energetic transmission. And that person can kind of in some sort of way bring a sense of unity, a sense of community to this group and allow people to kind of work to a shared purpose. But it's not like mind control. And I was trying to find a way to like, how could I do something? How could I have the idea of a, an alien collective that isn't based on coercion, but based on uni- unity and, and community? Yeah, and I, I felt that species was really fascinating. Like you said, the initial kind of stilted way they have of communicating to the perspective of outsiders because they don't have that translation ability. And then, you know, Saru kind of cluing in that it's this electromagnetic field. I thought that was really great. And it, it reminded me a little bit, I want to say, of like the Pakleds or something like that. But then we find out, of course, they're much more sophisticated and communicate and and have a really interesting society and the hub for example her whole nature i think is really fascinating with her kind of um stunted physical growth but at the same time she's very she has a lot of mental prowess and uh i guess maybe at this point do we want to start getting into spoilers yeah i think it's a perfect okay yeah so this point forward, we're getting into spoilers. If you haven't read the book, listen with care. <laughs> Maybe go read the book because it really is worth it. You should pick it up. It's excellent. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pulling the spoiler exactly. chain now. Exactly. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and the hub's ability also in a limited manner to kind of predict the future, I thought was a really interesting uh, take. And, and the fact that it's more of a just recognizing patterns, I thought was really cool. Um, where did you kind of, when did that kind of come into the story, that idea of, of her ability to do that? Well, I wanted to create, a, a, like I said, I wanted to, the whole idea, narratively, dramatically speaking, of the Gorlin is to create a species that you think is one thing when you first encounter them, and then you realize that there's layer after layer after layer. And so this was all about Saru's kind of discovery, if you will, through this story is, is Sari's personal journey of discovery with these guys is, is learning about who they are. And I think that's a very Star Trek, very Starfleet thing to do is, you know, he's unpicking the layers of what the Gorlon are, getting past the, his own preconceptions and also the, the preconceptions of the Peliarzel characters who have just seen the surface and said, these people are primitives. And, you know, and we're in a situation where we, because they're primitives, because we're more sophisticated, quote unquote, and smarter than them, we can pretty much treat them any way we like. Whereas Saru's the guy who's saying, well, maybe there's more to this. You know, maybe there's more to how all of this works. And once he, he drills down into that, you know, he discovers that they have this, this unification, this, this, this aura sense that kind of allows them to have a sense of community. And at each of the hub, she is uh, the kind of the exemplar of this. She's almost like this kind of quasi-religious sort of leader. I was imagining someone who's just got this kind of Dalai Lama kind of golden child kind of thing going on where, you know, there are somebody who's a, who who's this, represents like the spiritual center of these people uh, who can, where, you know, someone who can kind of help them find peace and direction in their lives. Um, and and the idea is that she, you know, she is kind of, although she's kind of physically withered, the idea is that, that evolution has kind of said, well, if her body is kind of weak, her mind has become stronger. And what she has is this, this kind of almost subconscious ability to see the patterns in things and understand 
what's going to happen. So it's not like she's literally precognitive and she's seeing visions of the future. It's more that her brain is kind of seeing all of these possibilities and, and saying, you know, if we go down this path, these are the things that are going to happen. So she's not able to kind of say, this is exactly what's going to happen, but she has a kind of vague sense of it. And that's what she's trying to communicate to Sarah is that, you know, we're on a path that's going to take us to a dark place and I, I need your help to help us bring things back before terrible things happen to all of us. Yeah. And Saru really starts to step up, but before we get even into that, uh, one of the things I also want to discuss is the relationship that Saru has with Burnham. Uh, when he, he's off the Shenzhou, uh, Captain Giorgio sends Burnham to Saru's cabin because Burnham and Saru have, that, that's the relationship that Saru has uh, a closer bond with is with Burnham, which is surprising because it's not that close. He's very standoffish. He doesn't, he's very private. He doesn't really get to know people and have a relationship with the rest of the crew. So Burnham then goes into his cabin to figure out what, just finding clues to explain why Saru was doing what he's doing on the Peliar ship. And she begins to learn that he's pushing himself without realizing what he's getting himself into. And, and uh, he's trying to be more like her. And I'd like you to just kind of explain that whole thought pattern you're having in that relationship between Saru and Burnham and, and his thoughts about her. Sure. I've got to say, that's one of my favorite bits of this book was to write those two characters. I really enjoyed kind of getting right into the weeds of that relationship. Um, because when I'd seen, I was, I was lucky enough that I got to go to the writer's room and, and sit in on a day. Um, and have a chat to the writers while the show was being put together um, when I was out in, in Los Angeles last year. Um, and, and Kirsten very kindly, you know, set me up in her office in front of her laptop and gave me uh, a couple of early cuts of the first two or three episodes to watch. Uh, and when I was done, I got to sit in uh, the lunch break in the writer's room and chat to sort of three or four of the writers. They, you know, sat me down there with a, you know, a, a bottle of Mountain Dew and a, and, a, and a toasted cheese sandwich. And I said, okay, guys, you know, I've got all these questions I want to talk to you about. And I, and I threw them all out there and I was chatting away. Uh, and the thing that I found myself most enthused about from reading these scripts and from watching the early episodes was that burnham Saru dynamic. Is they have this really interesting adversarial relationship. And it's a kind of adversarial relationship that we haven't really seen on Star Trek before. You get, you get a little bit of it when you look at like the Spock-McCoy relationship. Is that there's, there is that kind of, there's respect is they both realize, you know, you're pretty good at your job, but there's also a kind of sense of, I don't quite like you, but I'm not really, you know, but it could go the other way. And, and it was encapsulated really well to me at the end of a conversation I had with Kirsten. She said, she said, the relationship between Saru and Burnham is at this point, it's the seed that never gets any water. And I thought that's a really great way of putting it. You know, that is, that's the, that's the kernel of that, that relationship is that they could be good friends right now in this part of the story, but they're not because both of them are the people that they are. But you can see the idea that at some future point, and of course we see that in Discovery as the show starts to evolve, that there is the possibility these two people can become friends. But in Fear itself, this is four years before that happens, and they are definitely not at that place yet. But I wanted to lay that in. I wanted to kind of lay a little bit of the keel of that relationship and say, you can just about see where it could go. If things went a different way, they could be best buddies, but that's not going to happen for quite a while yet. And, and so trying to find a way to explore that was, you know, setting them up at the beginning of the novel where they, they're both dealing with this particular assignment that they're working on and they're both pulling at it from different directions and they have this kind of, you know, 
sniping kind of conversation that they're going through. And he's like, I want to do it this way. No, I want to do it this way. And, you know, they're, they're butting heads all the way through it. And then when Saru gets involved in the situation on, on the Pelyazel ship and he's no longer there, his relationship with the rest of the crew, with everybody else except Burnham, is thrown into very stark relief. Because as you say, because he's an introverted character, he hasn't really made a lot of friends. And in, in, in a sad kind of way, Burnham's the closest thing to a friend that he actually has. And the truth is they have this kind of quite negative relationship. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit sad, you know, when you think, oh, he doesn't really have anybody that he can kind of hang out with in 10 forward, as it were. And, and because she's a, a xenoethnologist, the, the part of Burnham that is interested in the nature of alien species is immediately intrigued by, by Saru because she wants to know more about who he is. You know, the scientist in her wants to know, tell me more about the Kelpian species, tell me more about you. But he's not opening up to her. So when she gets the opportunity to basically sneak around in his quarters and kind of peer in his underwear drawer, she takes it even if I think on some level she kind of feels a bit, um, a bit guilty about it. The other part of her that's saying, well, it'd be interesting to find out more about him. She jumps at the opportunity. I always, I feel like she's always studying him and she's always testing him and, and, and not really teasing him, but she puts him in situations where she just wants to see how he reacts. I've seen that in the show. And then also in, in your book, it's, it, it's a very interesting relationship between these two because they're not close. But like you said, this is the closest relationship he has with anyone. And they've served together for years. And I feel like there's very much a respect between the two characters but it's really very shallow, the different aspects of the relationship that comes into play outside of respect. Yeah, I mean, that whole thing about Burnham having that kind of testing mindset, that's definitely something I saw on the show. And I do deliberately echo that in their relationship in this book. And I think that comes from, from her personal baggage, which is, you know, being a human raised Vulcan. You look at what we see of Burnham's life, and she very clearly went through that in every step of her life. She was constantly being tested all the time, not just by, you know, Sarek saying, here's a maths problem for you to solve. But she was subconsciously being tested by the fact that living, you know, living in an alien culture and being tested because to be Vulcan, she's constantly being tested in that. And I think that to her is almost something she's assimilated into the way that you behave with people is that she tests Saru, she tests the people around her. You look at her relationship with, um, uh, with Captain Georgiou in the, at the beginning of the show, in the first couple of episodes, you can see her even doing that with her mentor figure, kind of testing what's going on around her, testing the boundaries, even with Tyler later on. There's always, a, there's always that element of her pushing and testing and, and, and kind of pulling on that element. And I think that comes down to the way she was raised. So that definitely plays into the relationship that she has with Saru. And Saru is also testing himself because he's somebody who's, you know, pushing against his own nature, trying to be better than he is. And that is a thing that they both share, which I think for quite a while that neither of them realize that they have that very strong point of commonality, but it's something that Georgiou sees and she knows that they're, they're both driven in, in this, in this fashion. Uh, and it's part of the reason why, you know, in the story, Saru kind of looks at the way that uh, Burnham is doing stuff and says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try the Mer Michael Burnham approach and it blows up in his face and it becomes, it's exactly the wrong choice to make at this critical moment. And he does exactly the wrong thing and everything goes horribly wrong. And then he has to kind of figure out, wait a minute, what I should have done is I should have made the Saru choice. How do I get back to where that is? 
Uh, and later on, that's something that, um, that Georgiou picks up on. And she says, you know, I don't want you to be like Michael Burnham. I don't want Burnham to be like you. I want you to be you and her to be her because I want the strengths of both of you are going to bring. I don't want this, the same thing repeated. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lines where she says, you know, I need a Michael Burnham and I need a Saru. And I, I thought that was just encapsulated that whole dynamic really perfectly. Yeah, because, I mean, Georgiou is, to me, this, this quintessential mentor character. I think, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I got a lot of love for Michelle. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've loved her as an actress from ages back, you know, plus just watching her kick ass in Jackie Chan movies. I mean, what's not to love. Right. But she's, she brings this kind of real sense of kind of grace and, 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 um, and intellect and sort of soft power to that role. And I really, really loved that. And that was another reason I was so happy to be able to do a book set before the battle of the binary stars so i could actually do some some georgiou scenes as well and i think she she encapsulates that idea of the of the mentor who is just trying to nurture these people you know she i know she's looking at these characters and saying i can make you the best officers you can be i'm just opening the door and helping you find the way to being your best possible self so this novel possibly uh very obviously is centered around the idea of fear i mean we've got the title fear itself we've got the character Saru, who is just very naturally driven by fear, you know, where he comes from, that's the fundamental thing that keeps them alive is this awareness of their surroundings and a fear of this predator species on their planet. But interestingly to me, by the end of this novel, I really feel that Saru is showing a lot more courage than any other character. So we get a lot of other examples. For example, the uh, the military officer that comes in in the Peliar car- carrier, you know, he's a big blustering military type. But it would, when it comes down to it, he shows a lot of fear and that drives him and he acts on that. Whereas Saru is constantly being bombarded by these feelings of fear. Um, but he's able to overcome it and, and he's constantly pushing against that, which almost to me makes him show more courage than anyone else in this book. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is it they always say is that, is that courage is being afraid and doing it anyway, right? right? And, and that's, that's what Sarah's doing right there. The character you're talking about, Tor, the, the, uh, the military officer is, he does, he's very, comes in this bellicose swaggering shouty guy, you know, kind of laying down the law and everything. Um, but underneath that all, he's terrified of the Tholians. Absolutely, absolutely terrified of this, you know, unknowable, scary alien force. And rightly so, of course, you know, he's completely right to be, be afraid of them. But what he's doing is he's externalizing that. He's, instead of kind of taking that inside and, 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 you know, dealing with it in a way that maybe a, a more kind of grounded person would be, he, he's externalizing his, um, his fear of them and turning it into anger against everybody else. So I guess my question then is, Tell us where Saru is at the beginning of this book and where Saru is at the end of this book. That's a good question. Um, I think at the, at the beginning of the book, you know, he's, he, he thinks, he thinks he's ready. He thinks he's ready for command. You know, he's, he's a bit resentful of, of Burnham because he's, you know, he's got this, I, I describe him in the story as like having this flat, steady career trajectory you know he's he's the kind he's the tortoise she's the hare right he's plodding his way on and he's doing what he needs to do and he's doing everything right but he's doing it at this slow steady pace he's not a rock star right he's just like i'm doing my job i'm, I'm a consistent steady guy and then suddenly in his rearview mirror what does he see 
you know, Burnham racing up through the command ranks. Everybody thinks she's cool, you know, and so he, he's, he's a bit resentful of her because he knows she's going to overstep him. She's going she's gonna to end up being promoted above him. And of course, we know that's exactly what does happen. You know, and so he's at the beginning point of the story. He's thinking, I could be doing. You know, why does everybody like her so much? I can do her job. I could be, I could be a first officer. I could be a captain. And he's absolutely believes all of that. And because he has this sort of sense of resentment, he doesn't really have a moment where he can look inward and go, "Is that really true? Am I really ready for this?" And because he has this moment of arrogance, he gets himself into a situation. And it all goes horribly wrong. And, and his arrogance is shown to him. He's like, you know, you, made, you helped make this bad thing happen. Now you've got to sort it out. And so by the, by the end of the story, he's, I think he's humbled a little bit. You know, he realizes that he made a mistake. And, you know, he comes back and he kind of takes it on the chin, which is a mature adult thing to do. You know, he doesn't try to shy away from it. He doesn't try and put the blame on somebody else. He basically says, I made this mistake. I'm going to own it. And I'm going to become a better person for it. I'm going to learn from the error that I made. And by the end of the story, he has, he's taken that on board and hopefully he's, he's kind of moved forward in his sense of self and understanding, a little, understanding himself a little bit better and maybe, you know, going, okay, well, I won't make that mistake again. You know, I'm not going to have that kind of level of arrogance. I mean, he still does a little bit, you know, he's not, he hasn't solved all of his problems by the end of the story, but he has made this incremental step forward in who he is and coming to understand the the nature of himself you know learning to live with his flaws and you know his more negative character traits so when you approach the character knowing what you've seen in the tv series you almost have to backtrack and maybe make him a little more fearful or whatever so he can learn this lesson to be where we see him in discovery yeah it's exactly that you know that's the thing when you're whenever you're writing a prequel you know, you have to kind of take the character and go, okay, well, you know, just wind it back, dial it backwards a little bit. This is similar to what I did back when I was writing uh, Day of the Vipers for the, the Terragnor DS9 stories. One of the main characters that appears in that is a young Gul Dukat, who's not even a Gull at that point. And I had to look at who he was in Deep Space Nine and say, okay, well, who is this guy 30 years before that? You know, he has to recognizably be that person but also has to have character traits that he will grow out of and change. I mean, this is only four years before we see Saru for the very first time on the TV show. So he's not changed that much, but he has to change uh, noticeably. And I think the lesson that Saru comes away with at the end of fear itself is, you know, make some friends, be a bit, you know, don't be so closed off. And we see that at the end when he kind of offers a sort of olive branch to, to, um, to Burnham and says like, well, maybe we could kind of hang out together and maybe not quite be so combative in our relationship. But then four years later, we see that they still do have that kind of spikiness going on. So it's, um, it's again, it's the, it goes back to the Kirsten statement about the seed that doesn't get any water is that, you know, he does make a step forward, but not enough that everything's solved and everything's perfect by the end of the story. Yeah. And what a great sandbox to also play in that you had to, uh, you could develop the other crew members of the Shinzu that we don't get to see that much on the show. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff has already been done by um, Dave Mack because early on we, we didn't have like a series Bible for the show to work from. So um, this is something that Dave did back when uh, him and Dayton and, and Kevin Dilmore were working on uh, Vanguard is develop the idea of a, a shared kind of writer's Bible. Uh, so, we started putting together this kind of shared document that we all had. And as the new episode scripts were coming out, you know, we would add stuff to it, subtract things to it. Uh, and 
that was where you know we came up with all the character names so and that was one of the great things the, the talked about the to and fro between the the books and the series is you know they they didn't have first names for the characters uh for a lot of the bridge crew uh and so those were ones that you know the writing the book writing team helped to create and said well you know if you don't have a name for detmer well her first name is kayla and it's like okay that's kayla detmer and now it's like folded back into the sort of the the canonicity of the show which is really kind of cool and i did a lot of development work um on saru's backstory and also on the the backstory of the kelpians is at one point uh, very in the very early iteration of the novel back then uh, the book was actually called danger zone because we were going to have all the books were going to have a two-word title starting with a with a d word obviously there weren't that many kenny loggins fans though at uh, the books <laughs> so we changed it we changed it to fear itself which i think is a much better title to be honest i think it homes more closely to what the, what the story is about um but yeah so early on a very early iteration of the story was going to be two parallel plot lines and the first one was going to be Saru dealing with uh, a situation kind of in the present day. But the other storyline was going to be the origin story for Saru. And he's going to talk about, you know, how he left his home planet and what the reasons were and how he became involved with Starfleet. Um, and a lot of that involved me developing an entire culture and backstory for, for the Kelpians. Uh, and I remember when, uh, Kirsten said to me, you know, we want you to do this. And I said, are you quite sure? Because this is a, that's a pretty big deal for this character. You really sure you want me to do that in a book? Because this is something that, you know, you should probably do on the TV show. And it's like, well, we're not really sure. And I said, well, you know, I remember asking like two or three times, are you quite sure you want me to do this? Because absolutely I'll leap at the opportunity, but it seems like it will be better for the series. And she said, no, go for it. So I did. And then as time went on, I think because Saru became, you know, as the, in the making of the, of the first season, people, I think, realized that Saru was becoming this breakout character. He had that depth of interest and, you know, there was a lot of room for him to grow and change and have more of his character unfolded on the show. In the end, they said, actually, you know what, we're going to do it on the show. And I said, yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so so, I, wrote, so I, I wrote a bunch of stuff. Um, which went into the, our writer's guide and that went to the writer's room. I have no idea how much, if any of it will, will appear if they eventually do the kind of Saru goes back to his home planet episode, you know, his, his, his amok time episode, right? If they, if they do an episode, like, I don't know how much, if any, they'll use. Um, we'll see. It'll be interesting to, to see what take the, the writer's room have on it. I think it's going to be, you know, fascinating to there. It's a really interesting team of writers there and to see what kind of uh, spin they're going to put on, on Saru's origin story. So I touch on it a little bit, uh, just very briefly talking about, you know, how he left his home planet and it was like kind of Starfleet offered him an opportunity to do something interesting and he took it. And of course, this is the fear itself is the first place where you actually see the name of Saru's homeworld mentioned, which is Kaminar. And, and that was, uh, we had a, a few different names about that. And then right to the, right at the very end, they were like, okay, we're going to put this in. This is, this is something that's going to be in the script. We're going to, we're going to put this into the book. So I was really pleased to kind of have that, little bit little tidbit of information unveiled in the novel again c getting to connect back to the evolving show as it went forward that's really cool because it makes you know your story even just that much more meaningful that it can be tied so closely to what they're doing on the show yeah very much so i mean it, it comes back to that point i made earlier on when i said about how happy we were when Kirsten became a, a writer on a tv show is it i think all of us writing the books did feel like this lends uh, a legitimacy to what we do as tie-in writers, you know, because there are fans out there who don't go for the tie-in stuff, who don't read the books, don't look at the comics, don't play the games, you know, who see that kind of ancillary material as, oh, it's not kind of proper 
Star Trek. You know, it's not, it doesn't count. It's not canonical. It's not this, it's not that. To which I say, well, you know, more for you because you're missing out on a bunch of really cool stories. But I think, you know, some of what we're doing, I mean, are these books, this is a question I've heard a lot. A lot of people say to me, are these books canonical? Is this official? Is everything that happens in these discovery novels totally, absolutely part of that universe? And the answer is, well, kind of. It's, it's, it's kind of soft can, right? It's like if, if, if I write something in fear itself and, and the script writers go, this is a cool idea and they use it, then it's canonical. And if they look at it and go, actually, we have an idea about how we could do that a bit better and a bit differently, then, then it kind of becomes non-canonical. And, and I'm sanguine about the whole idea because, you know, we, we write these stories, but we serve at the pleasure of the show, you know, because the show is, is the primary lead. And if it's in the show, if it's on the screen, that trumps what's on the page. And as a tie-in writer, you have to understand that. And if you have a problem with it, then maybe being a tie-in writer is not the right job for you. You know, I accept that. Um, and, I'm, and I'm happy just to get an opportunity to kind of play in the sandbox for a little while. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of always been our line on literary treks as well as, you know, if you're not reading the novels, you're missing out on some really great stories. And up until Discovery came along, it was the source for prime timeline new Star Trek. So, I mean, you guys have been doing a lot of really important work, I think, for the Star Trek universe. And, you know, whether or not something ends up being canon or not, to me, it's always, you know, that's something for the writers of the show to worry about. You know, for for us, you know, let's just enjoy Star Trek stories. That's kind of always been my take on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been reading Trek novels since, well, let me see. What's the first Trek novel? I would say, uh, if I don't count, like, novelizations, I mean, I'm, I think probably the, the James Blish episode novelizations were probably, like, the first Trek books I ever read. But the first Trek, like, like proper tie-in, you know, original story I ever read was Vonda McIntyre's The Entropy Effect. I remember a friend of mine, I was, I was a member of a Star Trek fan club and a friend of mine who was running it, my friend Kathy said to me, hey, have you read this? This is really cool. This is like an original Star Trek novel. I was like, wow, more Star Trek? I didn't know there was more stuff, you know, because you read the novelizations and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool, but it's a show I've already seen. He's like, no, no, here's a completely new original story. Here's new stuff for you to take in. Why would you not want to be interested in that? And the thing is, is looking back at that, the, I mean, like that particular book, right, with the, you know, Sulu with long hair and a beard and all that kind of thing that was going on in there and all these little interesting bits and pieces. Does that dovetail with other bits of Star Trek? Well, no, but it's, you know, I can kind of hold those two different versions of it in my head at once and not be confused and angry about it. And I'm always a little bit, I, I don't get people who say, well, it doesn't all match up in complete exacting detail. Therefore it's wrong. And to me, I go, it's, it, it's not wrong. It's just different. You know, you can accept two different things side by side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I watched a Marvel movie and it doesn't fit in exactly to that same Marvel comic perfectly. So it's just a oh, different geez, version. You know, <laughs> you know? Man, I mean, you know, if you're a comics <laughs> fan, I mean, forget continuity, right? I mean, is there is there any, I don't think there's any comics that exist that, that maybe keep all of their continuity. I mean, I guess there must be some out there somewhere. But yeah, I mean, if you like Marvel or DC, if you're a superhero comics nerd, you, you, you learn to live with that idea from, from the get-go. Well, in Star Trek, it's easy, too. You can just ex explain, well, yeah, it takes place in the prime timeline. If something doesn't match up, then someone messed with the timeline at some point, I guess, or it spun off into a, this is a different <laughs> alternate universe. I mean, we, we can make it all work. Are people still saying that Discovery isn't in the prime timeline? Is that still a thing? I hope it isn't. I, I don't hear it that often, but occasionally I do. Yeah, there's a recent comment on one of my YouTube videos just this morning that 
oh, it's in the Calvin timeline, but I'm like, okay, whatever. (laughs) Once my fear itself was officially announced, I did have people um, saying, sending me messages going, you know, it's not in the prime timeline. I was like, yeah, it kind of is. Sorry. Don't, don't agree with you there. You know, it's like, by all means, you know, you can have your opinion about it, but uh, it says Star Trek on it. So it's prime timeline. Sorry. Yep. Absolutely. Well, uh, kind of something I wanted to bring up, um, and this is kind of a sensitive subject because we're not getting a lot of Star Trek novel releases this uh, year. I'm wondering if you've heard any progress on these pocketbook CBS negotiations that we keep being told is right around the corner here. Do you know of any plans for new novels coming soon? (laughs) Uh, I gotta be really careful what I say now. Um, I've heard some things, things I can't say any more about. Um, there, you know, the problem with this is because all of this stuff is happening kind of behind the scenes, and this is all corporate machinations, you know, and it's people in boardrooms who have no, frankly, no interest in what it is that we're interested in. This stuff, this stuff just doesn't trickle down to mm-hmm. us, you know. And so they'll they'll be like, well, we'll tell you when we tell you. They don't really care about us writers or editors or readers about what we're thinking about. They're, they're talking about dollars and cents and, and the bottom lines, right? So those negotiations are ongoing. I've heard different reasons about why things have been taking so long. I think uh, I've heard people say that there, there are certain contractual elements that were in conflict and there were certain things that one group wanted to do that other groups didn't want to do. I don't know how much of that is true. So that's the part of the reason why things are taking so long. And I've been told the same things that you guys have is that, you know, that the, an official response is just around the corner and I've been hearing it for a while. And frankly, I'm as frustrated about it as you are, obviously, because, you know, I want to continue to write Star Trek novels. So not just as somebody who's reading Star Trek books, but as somebody who's working, you know, in that auspice, I want to know, you know, am I going to be able to write a Star Trek novel and, you know, next year, how's it going to go? Um, I tell you what I personally believe. I think, you know, this, I think things are going to go back to the status quo. I don't, I don't see a reason why things would change. I think CBS would be foolish to, to, to give the license wholesale to somebody else unless they had a fantastic idea. I think that, you know, the, the Star Trek books we've been getting over the past few years have been just really strong. And I don't see a reason for that going away, but you could argue that I am being a little self-serving there. And I guess, yeah, I probably am. I'll take that on the chin. But I think, you know, we've got a good thing going here and I don't see why, you know, certainly if I was in charge, I wouldn't want to change things. So I hope just as everybody else does that we will get an answer soon that we will get, um, you know, a, uh, a, a definitive answer about what's going forward. I think I've seen a lot of people saying online, you know, oh, this is the end of Star Trek books as we know it, you know, there's going to be a, a kind of Star Wars EU style bloodbath where everything's going to be thrown out and chucked onto the fire and that's going to be the end of it. Or there won't ever be any more Star Trek books ever again, or there will only be discovery books or there'll only be this. I, I would be surprised if that sort of thing happened because, you know, Star Trek is a strong brand. There's, there's an obvious demonstrative audience out of there. You guys wouldn't be doing a podcast like this if there wasn't a strong audience for people who want to read these books. I think we will see more of them. Um, I, and I would certainly like to write more. You know, I would love to come back and do another Discovery novel. I have an idea kicking around. I'd like to do another Titan novel at some point. You know, Star Trek is such an embarrassment of riches. There's so much out there in the universe, so many stories for us to tell. Even with 
years of TV shows and movies and, and comics and, and, and books and other stuff, there's still so many stories that we can tell, so many great characters. And I don't think anybody wants to see that stop happening in, in the books and comics anytime soon. Yeah, I'm confident that we will get something at some point. It's just a matter of when. But there's definitely going to be more Star Trek books coming sometime in the future. I mean, I guess we, well, we've got the Las Vegas convention coming up soon, haven't we? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, um, I mean, I'm not saying this because I know anything, but I'm thinking if maybe, maybe that'll be the point when we'll get like come some sort of official answer because that would be like the big official event. Well, and it, it could be. And, and this whole conversation could be mute anyway, because by the time this episode releases, maybe an announcement has already come out. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? I mean, yeah, I, you know, I hope so. And, uh, and I, I, w- I want to see sort of like more cool stuff coming out. It's been, it's been interesting as well, because there's not just the, the pocketbook Star Trek stuff. You know, we've also been seeing a lot of really interesting Trek works coming out from different publishers. I just picked up today uh, the Root of All Rage, the the second Star Trek Prometheus oh, novel. Yeah. Yes, we reviewed uh, that on our last episode. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't listened to that one actually. Um, so that um, that's been really that's a really fascinating idea to me is the idea of you know our, our German friends, the the guys who translate you know um, uh, my novels for the German market is like bringing a completely new cast of characters and seeing you know a, a totally new spin-off star trek series that's been really fascinating for me to read and then we've got stuff like the uh you know the autobiography series mm-hmm. is uh i picked up the i haven't read it yet. i got the autobiography of james t kirk because i i was thinking i was like ah, do i want to read this is this what kind of book is this really you know i, I wasn't sure if it was how does it it's like it's Factual fiction, fictional facts. <laughs> it's like the idea of the idea of an autobiography of a fictional character just kind of struck me as a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd read is is David Goodman, isn't it? I, I you know I'd read his uh, the Federation first one hundred fifty years, and I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was in a bookstore looking around for something, and and there was a hardcover copy of the 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 Kirk autobiography, and I thought, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna just give this a go and just try it out. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, even with this uh, pocketbooks kind of on pause at the moment, there's a lot of really great stuff out there, like you said. So, and uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie. The fact that this episode comes out two weeks after we record it, um, I'm kind of hoping that it's going to jinx the universe and we'll get an announcement before it actually (laughs) comes out. So, (laughs) but the listeners out there will be able to know if that's true or not. But, uh, yeah, you'll be getting messages going, you guys got it wrong. It was this all along. <laughs> exactly. They'll just be laughing at us as they listen to this. <laughs> Those poor fools, little did they realize. You know, yeah. yeah, they're going to announce that what happens after this point is like, it's going to be uh, from now on, Star Trek Publishing is going to be all crayon and coloring book publishing, <laughs> uh, dot, dot to dot books and, and, and crossword puzzles. That's all we're going to be doing from this point on. Was it date my my buddy Dayton Ward said that we're doing nothing but rom-coms from this point forward. I think that was his hmm. idea. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's going to change our show a little bit. <laughs> I'd still read. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, um, obviously, you know, nothing Star Trek related uh, in, in the pocketbooks universe on the horizon from you coming up, but is there anything else that you've kind of got on the go that our, our listeners might be interested in? I'm so glad you asked. Um, I have, I've had a really packed month. Actually, I had two book launches almost back to back. Uh, so just before fear itself came out, uh, the third book in my Mark Dane action thriller series, ghost 
came out in hardback in the UK and that's been doing really well. And I'm very, very pleased with that. That is uh, sort of set in the present day. It's kind of action adventure, born identity, mission impossible style kind of thriller. Uh, so ghost is the third one in the series. Uh, and as I say, that's out in hardback right now and uh, export trade paperback ebook and audio edition. And the first book in that series, uh, Nomad, is going to be coming out in the U.S. market in September. Uh, Tor Forge Books are going to be publishing that. Uh, and my old friend Marco Palmieri from uh, Star Trek days back in back in the he was the guy who very kindly brought me into the U.S. market there. So I'm hoping that my American readers will finally get a chance to to read some of my thriller books. Uh, and beyond that, I'm working on a, a couple of video game projects, doing a little bit of work on uh, The Division 2, which just got announced at E3 this weekend. Uh, and a couple other titles that are in the hopper that I can't talk about right now. Uh, and I have some, some other book projects, which I'm hoping to announce in the next two to three months, but things are sort of, off, you know, once again, uh, some of this stuff's under NDA. So I have to be careful what I say about it. Awesome. And uh, is there anywhere online that uh, people can follow you and kind of keep up to date on what you've got coming out? Well, the best place to, to track me down is uh, I, I always waste way too much time hanging out on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trying to be funny and posting stuff, pictures of in, pictures of interesting clouds or jokes, you know, cat videos, that kind of thing. So you can find me on Twitter at JMSwallow. Uh, and alternatively, if you want to read um, some of my uh, my blog postings, you can find me on jameswallow.blogspot.com, uh, my red flag blog, uh, which I try to update as frequently as I can, talk about my writing and my books and all the new stuff that's coming out. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I think uh, I, I hopefully speak for Br- both Bruce and I when I say this was a really excellent novel. And uh, I, I did love, I actually really enjoyed the two previous Discovery novels, but I think this one is my favorite of the three so far. So uh, really great novel and a really great exploration of, of really a favorite character of mine. Oh, thank you, Dan. It means a lot to me. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it too. And I, I even picked up on the little Easter egg with Ija, the hub, seeing into the future. It looks like uh, she's seeing Saru on the planet of Pavo in the uh, Discovery series. It sounded uh, like that. Uh, good catch there, Bruce. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, um, this is another thing that came out of me being able to be the, 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 the last guy writing the series. Obviously, by the time I was done, the entire series had aired. So I got to go back and sort of say, well, are there any places where I can kind of, uh, you know, prefigure and pre- foreshadow stuff? So yes, that's very deliberate. That, that little moment I added at the end where she's, she's kind of seeing him go that way and saying, you know, you're going to go to this place. And she's talking about Pavo, you know, that you're going to go to this place and you're going to think all of your problems are solved and it will be fake, you know, don't fall for mm. it. But yeah, there's, there's a bunch of little Easter eggs in there. There's some, um, as well as the uh, that reference to, to discovery, there's there's uh, the, and the TNG reference with the the Peliar and the the uh, TOS reference with the Gorlans. There's also a, a little reference in there to Charlie X, which I picked up on is when I was doing the timeline for this story because it's set in uh, 2552. Uh, I looked around at the the Star Trek timeline to see well what else happened in that year, uh, and that's the year that Charlie X and his family go missing. Mm. So there's a little nod to that in the book as well and a couple of other little references here and there but yeah it was um i love doing that kind of stuff you know you put those little kind of kisses with history in there and it's if you're a really sort of hardcore star trek nerd you go oh i get that reference <laughs> and that would be us. awesome <laughs> yeah it's in there for you guys i did it all for you all right great well thanks again for joining us and we hope to have you back soon with a new star trek book someday yeah me too thanks guys my pleasure to be here
So it was great to have James on, but you know, it's, it's so great to get these novels from these guys in discovery because they're all prequels to the original series, but at the same time, they're, they're self-contained stories. So when we watch the TV show, it's this overarching storyline that goes several episodes. Well, when you get to the novel, it almost feels like more of the traditional Star Trek episodes where it's all self-contained. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I love that this one is set aboard the Shenzhou because I love that dynamic. And we only got a little bit of that on the show. But another thing that I didn't mention during the interview that I wanted to bring up was, you know, the first two novels, I really did love them. And they have these really cool connections to Kirk and, and some, you know, other things from the original series and that sort of thing. But this one, I feel, is the first one that really stands on its own. And it's pretty much just Discovery characters doing their thing and going through this story. There's no like, oh, the Enterprise shows up, Captain April's here, or there's a young Jim Kirk or something like that. So, you know, it, it just goes to show that, you know, this show and this series can stand on its own and craft just a really terrific story that uh, is a lot of fun to read. Yeah, it's fun getting those connections to TOS and the other novels, but you don't want that in every novel. It gets to be expected mm -hmm. and it's just repetitive. And so, yeah, this was nice. It, it really felt like watching an old episode of Discovery from a previous season that we haven't seen yet. It was a Saru episode. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about Saru episodes of Star Trek Shenzhou today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I thought it was really funny, not funny, but sort of weird. A, a, a good contrast that she was actually eaten by Klingons and then later the Emperor in the mirror universe is shown eating a kelpian i was just saying oh, I, either nice. side of either universes the species are munching on each other oh dear <laughs> oh my gosh warp five so we would have cool firefights at this point we could bang pew pew stuff like that yes well, you can yeah, only do so much in a hallway stuff. dude <laughs> why i said you can only do so much in a hallway maybe i don't know uh, maybe in the mess hall. There you go. Have you have you seen Star Trek? They're always hiding behind some like bulkhead that's just randomly placed in a hallway. <laughs> this is true. They're, they're yeah. all over the place. Earl Grey. So she's trying to balance this and she's playing along, but she gets to that point where it's like, and I, I love that scene as well. It's like, now is the time to listen to me. We've tried to do it your way. It hasn't worked. I, basically, I'm ordering you to do that, or I'll eject you into space. And we know how how Troy is. Like, she's the last person you'd think who would like exactly. eject someone into space, yes. or even threaten that, or even threaten that. But because she's gotten to this point and is in this perilous situation, I believe that she might actually do it. You know, melodic tricks. But the interesting thing about this episode's score, it was composed by. Fred Steiner, who did a lot of episodes for the original Star Trek, but this episode did not have a complete score. Uh, in fact, there's only about 10 minutes of music that were actually recorded for this episode, and the rest of it was library material. So we're going to focus today on the music that was recorded specifically for this episode, and some of the fun music that that entails. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So be sure to check out all these shows. And if you have the time, join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get all the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please, please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. I really love the cadence of that. I think I want like a cheerleading squad. Give me a P! Anyway, (laughs) perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, and those are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us. We hope you'll join the team. Again, you will find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, give me a B, into the search field (laughs) on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, we would love to have that. Just go to our website at trek.fm slash contact, choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. And of course, there are always great conversations happening about all of the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and one of us will let you right in. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network, and specifically for being associate producers for Literary Treks. Thank you guys so much. We really do appreciate it. Now, Bruce, when you're not bravely fending off a Tholian attack with nothing but your wits and an old freighter at your disposal, where can we find you? I'm so witty to get away from the Tholians. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, I'm always in, always in the Babel Conference. Give me a B! There you go. B! (laughs) (laughs) And Dan, when you're not shouting Bs or Ps when you're going through Saru's cabin, where can people find you? (laughs) Well, I'm going to be avoiding that nasty holographic training thing he has set up. That scared the crap out of me. I know. Uh, (laughs) Scary. But when I'm not... Yeah, no kidding. But when I'm not dealing with that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on Facebook.com slash Kertrats Productions and on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Kertrats Productions. Mostly lately talking about all the interesting news coming out from behind the scenes of Star Trek Discovery. So... 
Lots of interesting stuff there. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference. And much like Bruce, if uh, you don't see a lot of comments from me, it doesn't matter. I'm still there. I'm just lurking and reading everything. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.